Welcome to the Radio DePaul Sports Podcast. My name is Gina Scioli and I am joined by Abbas Dahodola. In the last two weeks, our country has seen civil unrest and demand for change after the murder of George Floyd on Minneapolis on Memorial Day. As a station, we strongly support the Black Lives Matter movement and stand with our Black classmates, leaders, brothers, and sisters in the fight for systemic change. This podcast contains interviews with head coach Doug Bruno, the athletics John Greenberg, and DePaul's own and former Chicago Tribune writer Fred Mitchell about the state of the country and the responsibility of those in sports to use their platform in a time like this. We hope our listeners engage with the movement in any way they can and that this podcast gives us in sports media some clarity and motivation to speak out against injustice and promote change to create a better future for those after us. The boss and I encourage you to read and educate yourself which our guests promote also, as you will hear, to make sure that this is not a trend and that the fight is far from over. In the description, we have links to organizations you can donate to and petitions to sign. Every little thing helps. Now, before we start the interviews, Abbas and I wanna share a few of our own thoughts on what we are seeing around us. So over the last few days, um, the last week, I guess, we've seen uh, these protests going on across the nation and a lot of people kind of paying more attention than they were before. Uh, and I think my main takeaway from all of this so far is that um, people really need to educate. And I think it's something that we, we hear, we heard a ton of, and you'll hear a ton of in the, in this podcast. Um, it's one of the, one of the main things that people have told us that uh, people just need to educate themselves on these situations. And one of the, Another thing that I think is just really key about these protests right now is that we've seen protests like these in the past, um, but never at this type of scale in my lifetime uh, for this cause. Uh, and I think the main thing is that it needs to be consistent and people can't just forget in, in three weeks or in two weeks. Uh, I think that happens a bit too often in, in, in society. And I think even we as media have to be responsible about that, that we have to continue the discourse. And I think media has such a, a, a prime spot in terms of continuing discourse. And I think we need to continue to talk about this again and again and again, because it's not a problem that'll fix itself in two weeks. It'll take a long, long time to fix the injustices of the last 400 years, 500 years, however long uh, we want to say. Yeah, I agree with everything that Abbas just said. I think it's, you know, it's not easy to watch what's happening, but it's incredibly necessary and it has to happen. We can't turn a blind eye because it's uncomfortable. There's no room for that anymore. And for a really long time, I never engaged in political things that made me uncomfortable, but this is no longer political, it's a human rights issue. And that's something that we have to realize. And again, just to you know, really nail this in is to educate ourselves. I think there's a, a huge misunderstanding with the slogan or the, the title of the movement, Black Lives Matter. And I think that's something that has hindered this from actually seeing change for so long. And I think we're seeing people realize that, you know, All Lives Matter is counterintuitive to this whole movement. And realizing the privilege that I have as a white woman coming from the Midwest, um, 
has really pushed me to to use the platform that I have. It doesn't matter if you have a thousand followers or three. Those three people are seeing things that they might not see otherwise. And so I really encourage us as young people to really use social media as the platform that it should be used for. Yeah, and I guess like two two other things that I wanted to like uh, to bring up is that as as you know, I'm not a white American, but I'm not an African American, and I think even people who are, you know, uh, Latinos, uh, Muslim Americans like me, I think even we have a part to play here, uh, where yeah, we are subjugated to some prejudices, some racism, but um, we have to be aware uh, that we haven't had to deal with what African Americans have had to deal with, so. We can, I mean, we, we can't really understand exactly what they've had to go through because we haven't been subjugated to that uh, in, in no form, no, no way that, that there's no way that we have been subjugated to what, what they've been subjugated to. So we have to stand with them and understand. And that's where the education comes from, where you have to read African-American authors. You have to read all this uh, pe- people who are talking about their own experiences because our experiences can never really match up to that. And, and along with that, um, Gina, you talked about like as young people, I think there was something, I, I don't remember where I read it, but um, it's like for white Americans, white young Americans, I think they, if, if they are, are very active in speaking out and staying educated, they can have such a big change uh, moving forward because they can influence their parents, their grandparents, their uncles, their aunts. Uh, and they can inf- influence a lot of people who usually would not speak out about something like this and people who might be on the other side, uh, mm-hmm. who might not agree with the way that stuff is happening right now. But uh, I think we have like an opportunity to kind of change that, that thought point. Mm-hmm. And it's an, an incredibly unique time with this also happening with a pandemic. I'm home in Ohio, so I can have these conversations with my parents in person, which I think is incredibly valuable and something that people have to take advantage of. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. You know, My parents and I agree on a lot of the same things, um, and we agree on this 100%. But it's a conversation whether you agree with people or not, you have to have it anyway. Just because you agree with people doesn't mean it's not a necessary thing to talk about. Um, and I think to, to kind of finish our discussion off, you know, something that I think is incredibly important to realize is that in a moment like this, it's not enough to just not be racist and just say that is enough. Because it's not. You have to be anti-racist and you have to be willing to be uncomfortable to make the change that we have to see in this country and across the world. This is not, and you know, it's obviously much more um, extreme here in the United States, but it is not isolated to this country. And so with this generation, we have so much power and we can't let it go to waste. Um, so with that, um, we have three incredible interviews with really great people that we were so fortunate to talk to about this issue and this topic. Um, specifically in the lens of sports, because that's what we do, um, and how important it is to realize that sports and politics or social justice issues are no longer mutually exclusive, nor should they have ever been. But going forward with these interviews and with athletes speaking out, we really hope that 
you know, we still continue to have these conversations in sports, in mainstream media, and everything because it's necessary. Fred Mitchell is an adjunct faculty member at DePaul University. Mitchell is a sports writer who spent more than 41 years at the Chicago Tribune, where he became the only Tribune writer to have been the main beat reporter for the Bears, Bulls, and Cubs, completing the trio of the three major sports. One thing Mitchell said to us is that it is very important to tell the stories that athletes and others involved in sports have. Mitchell himself was an athlete. He played kicker at Wittenberg University in Ohio. In a small-town college that was not racially diverse, Mitchell said that he faced moments of discrimination. I played football, and one of the sad, enduring uh, memories that, that I have to this day is uh, as a football player, uh, I was, we were playing a game against Davidson uh, in, in North Carolina my sophomore year. And I was a place kicker, and I, I kicked uh, what turned out to be the winning field goal with, with, you know, a few seconds left to go. And so I'm 18 years old, and I'm feeling really great, good about myself and proud and pleased. And then I go to, to kick off after kicking the field goal. And someone from the Davidson sideline yelled out, hurry up and kick the ball, and then he used the N-word. And it really uh, stole my moment to, of, of jubilation to, to hear that. And, the, you know, the fact that that resonates with me even to this day just shows you the, the impact of what that statement had on me. Uh, and there have been numerous other things that have happened, and some people might think that they're uh, minor things but it's an, an accumulation of that type of indignation that makes people of color often paranoid, you know? And uh, the old saying is, uh, just because you're not paranoid doesn't mean somebody's not out to get you. Uh, so even though you try to repress things that happen to you and, and, and rationalize things that happen to you, sometimes in the back of your mind, you can't help but feel it, it, it happened to me because I'm black, because I'm a minority. Uh, you kind of go back and forth in your mind uh, with that. You try not to obsess. I, I haven't anyway. Obsess over it also just drive you crazy. So my mantra has always been to, you know, you know do my job, be responsible, uh, so that no one will have reason to, to question my work ethic and my sincerity my integrity. These are things that I can control. Uh, the other things I can't control. So I, I always say that someone has a problem with the color of my skin. I'm going to let it be their problem and not make it my problem as, as well. Mitchell also recounted an instance when he was just starting out at the Chicago Tribune as a copy editor. About first year I was with the Tribune and I worked on what they call the copy desk. I was a copy editor before I had a chance to be a writer. So, you know, you're reading the copy, writing the headlines, fact-checking, you know, that sort of thing. And there was a, a, a white uh, sports writer who was half-joking, I think, 
but he came over and put his arm on my shoulder and, and said loudly for everybody, you know, Chicago Tribune has hired a black sports writer. What is the world coming to? And, you know, it, it was an uncomfortable moment for me. He was trying to, I think, uh, make it sort of a joke, but it certainly, you know, wasn't, wasn't a joking type of matter. But, uh, you know, early in my career, I'll just, you know, without naming specific people or anything like that, I'll just say that there were some people who did not want me to, to succeed and made it kind of difficult for me. And, you know, almost to the point where they were in, encouraging me to give up on, on, on the situation, uh, on the prospect. And I hung in there and, and, and took everything in, in stride as best I could uh, and just took the attitude of saying, hey, you know what, I'll prove you wrong, you that I can do this and I can do it well. And that's pretty much what inspired me for 41 and a half years at the Chicago Tribune. So I'm proud of the fact that I had that longevity, that I was able to overcome some of the people who weren't uh, supporting me. And, and I'm thankful that I had the perspective to know that uh, a majority of people were supporting me. So I didn't paint with a broad brush. Uh, most people did want me to, to succeed, but there was a, a faction, I would say, that did not. And I could have gone, you know, that was, that was sort of the fork in the road, I thought, in, in my uh, career. That, you know, I could say poor me and, and sort of succumb to whatever criticism or doubts that were coming my way, or I could push harder and, and, and say, you know, just give me a chance, give me an opportunity, and I'll show you what I'm able to do. And I'm certainly glad that I, I took that path instead of the bowing out. The protests that are going on right now have reached all across America. ABC News reported that protests took place in all 50 states, with many athletes in attendance. Mitchell compared the current protests to the 1960s. He said that one of the main differences with the current protests is the availability of technology and social media, which has allowed Americans to document protests across the Internet. Well, I'm, I'm old enough to, to have experienced the, the 1960s and uh, the, the, the civil unrest and protests and the uh, indignations perpetrated by, by the police and, and, and government, frankly. Uh, and the, the biggest difference now is that uh, we have cell phone evidence of, of uh, things that are, that are happening, whereas back then, uh, it was like he said, she said type of a thing. And uh, it, it's, it's much more uh, visceral if people can actually witness what's going on. And uh, certainly in this, in this case, in the past couple of weeks, uh, because of the cell phone footage, everyone could see what was going on. They could hear what was going on. And uh, there was just a, a much stronger emotion that, that came about. And I think that's that's the biggest difference, and I think that's going to impact our society for a longer time. I think based on what I've seen in the peaceful protests, especially, that uh, there, there's a, a, a diversity in people protesting, white, black, brown. Uh, it's not just 
one culture. So I, I think there's enough people uh, who are incensed, embarrassed, disappointed, you name it, uh, that uh, something will be done on a, on a major basis at this point. The relationship between sports and society has also been brought to the forefront. Mitchell said that telling the stories of athletes can have impacts on communities as a whole. At the same time, telling the stories of just common people allows readers to relate and share their fears. I, I teach a course at DePaul called uh, Sports, Media, and Society, and I can't think of a, a, a time that's more representative of the intersection of, of these three things in our lives, in everybody's lives, uh, especially as it applies to sports and how what, what impact sports plays on uh, all of us and uh, the roles that uh, prominent people in the sports field can have on the community at large. Uh, this whole circumstance is, is, is unprecedented, certainly uncharted water waters uh but it, it's a time i think for for leadership time for uh direction and a time for people to tell their stories I mean, one of the things that i most commonly tell my students is that everyone has the story to tell and as journalists it's incumbent upon good reporters to be able to ask the right questions find out uh, different people's paths in life. And uh, I often say that regardless of whether you're Michael Jordan, you know, someone famous, or if you're the so-called ordinary person on the street, everyone has a story to tell about overcoming challenges, disappointments, uh, things that happened in their lives that motivate them. And I think journalists, uh, particularly at this time, can take the time to uh, ask those questions of everyone. And, and it's a time for, for athletes, prominent professional athletes, to tell their authentic stories of what they have had to overcome. Because so often uh, we in the media uh, exalt uh, athletes and put them on a pedestal and, and sort of pretend that they don't have any issues or problems. And of course, we all know that's not the case. Uh, so I think. The role of the media is to uh, uh, get these stories out and let people know that they're not alone in their anxiety and their fears and their trepidations and their concerns, and also to give them on the op opposite end uh, some hope for the future that uh, you can turn this difficult time into a, a, a time of growing and getting better in the future. Over the last few days, we have seen many pro teams release statements about the protests. Mitchell said that teams need to not only release statements, but also take responsibility for any inaction in the past. Right, and and we you're right that uh, you know we've seen in the past where uh, things have been said or done through organizations, uh, sports organizations, ownership in the, in the case of the Chicago Cubs. And they've had to apologize and say that, well, this is not representative of what we believe in, it, uh, yada, yada, yada. And it, you know, it can be just a bunch of words. But yes, they need to be held accountable for their actions and uh, implement some initiatives that address some of the problems and situations 
that we have and to uh, I think uh, admit some culpability uh, for past actions and just not simply say that uh, we weren't aware that there was a problem but to say that we were not uh, aggressive uh, enough to take action earlier we should have done a better job I think people uh, respect that uh, and, and you know don't just want to be fed some some words that, that uh, suggest that uh, oh we didn't know any better or we weren't aware that our players were uh, experiencing this type of thing so I, I think uh, an authentic message from sports ownership is what would be most appreciative to say that you know we, we have, uh, have not done our full duty in the past and we're going to do a better job and here are four or five examples of immediate things that we're going to implement to take care of, uh, of this issue. Greenberg is the lead columnist for the Athletics Chicago coverage and the Athletics founding editor. I had a class of his this past quarter entitled Sports Opinion Writing. Naturally, we wanted his opinion on the news and how sports media can play into it. I began by asking him what the Athletics response has been on the inside and what the interactions have been like between editors and writers to properly handle the current climate. Yeah, and it's been tough. You know, those are those are kind of conversations that start above me too, because we're such a big company now. Like I'll talk to my small staff, but you know, we have company-wide regulations now. Not regulations, but just it, it, and it's not easy. You know, obviously people. I think the leeway a lot of people have is to you know talk more about what's going on in the world and not just focus on beat your you know your sport. You can't ignore what's going on in the world, nor should you. And I, I think we were kind of encouraged to just be respectful you know, in that regard. And I think everyone is. Um, and yeah, like we're, we're doing stuff like you'll see like our main accounts aren't tweeting out like a lot of random stories, mostly just stories about what's going on now. And if we have a sports story that relates to that, then I think that's fair game. So we're, we're being pretty careful um, from the athletic accounts of what we're tweeting, you know, to show respect. So if there's something in someone's neighborhood, I, I've encouraged them to cover it safely which is not something, you know, we usually don't cover rallies and stuff because that's not, that's not what we do. So we're, we're trying to branch out on that too. Greenberg wrote a piece for The Athletic released on June 2nd, demanding for people's attention to the news and one's voice to react to what is happening. It also dives into statements from owners of teams and how they often come across as empty or misleading to what their personal biases are. Here, he addresses what he hopes the reaction will be to his column. I, I actually talked about it with an executive today about, you know, I asked someone if they wanted to write something for us and he pointed to what I wrote yesterday, you know, that there is a sense of like, why him? You know, uh, he's white and he's just like, you know, why me? Why, you know, you wrote yesterday, you, you don't always have to speak. And I'm like, you know, yeah, that's a good point. Like you don't. So, but I did, I was like, oh, okay. I guess people did want to read something like this. And even, you know, white sports writer saying it, you know, can be helpful to people. You know, it's like, sometimes I don't really know how to step out to be like, I am empathetic, but I, I just, sometimes I wonder like what that's worth. And I struggle with that. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think I did find that some people did, you know, appreciate it. And of course, some people didn't, and they're going to nitpick stuff, and that's to be expected. You know, I just hope people read more. You know, if if you know if you're different, if you're you haven't experienced things black people have experienced, I hope you, you know, at least try to try to read more and try to understand, you know, the problems and the ills of society, and that it's not this isn't just a one-time thing, and, and kind of how people feel behind it i think you know if you just listen and read you you'll you'll understand more that's that's just common sense in the last four years the intersection of sports and politics has blurred we asked him if those in sports media both journalists and athletes have a responsibility to be vocally active when an issue arises in our society i mean i i believe so you know i i do um and at least call people out occasionally, you know, when they're not doing that. I, I can understand there's some people that didn't go into it for that. There's some people that just went into it because they like sports and they like talking about sports. You know, some people, are, especially now, focus on, you know, kind of the more hardcore analysis. And that doesn't mean those people don't care. That's just like what they're good at. But I think, you know, as a sports writer, especially, you should be good at, at telling stories. and You should be good at talking to people different than you. You know, I mean, if you're a white sports writer and you're covering sports, you're probably going to talk to more, you know, I mean, let's be honest, more black people than the average reporter is if that reporter isn't, you know, that's not their beat. You know, and guys aren't comfortable expressing themselves all the time. We're asking people to express themselves really extemporaneously, you know, in a situation they're not prepared for. Or it's a press conference where they are prepared for it with PR talk. So, you know, you really, the best things you can do is if you have relationships with people, and you can have real conversations, substantial conversations. You know, we uh, at The Athletic published like a, a roundtable with a bunch of black major league or ex-major leaguers, guys that are retired that don't have to worry about pissing off the team or get, you know what I mean? Or like saying something that's going to ruffle people's feathers. And it was a really interesting conversation. And they admitted, you know, something I already knew is that guys don't want to talk a lot to the media about serious stuff because especially now with social media, your quote, people are just going to rip and run your quotes, becomes, you know, an ESPN talk show fodder. I, I do think it is, you know, sports media's job to talk about real issues, especially now. I mean, how could you, you know, how could you avoid it? You know, there's so many things that where sports and society, you know, interact. When people say like they don't want politics and sports, they just don't want someone else's politics and sports. Going forward with trying to educate yourself on a complicated topic ingrained in our society, Greenberg stresses the importance of reading and fact-checking to make sure one is well-informed and ready to take action to help others. Yeah, I read. it's the best thing you can, I mean, there's so much stuff out there you can read. You know, I tried to put some links in my last column about different, you know, great stuff I've read recently. You know, in this case, I was talking about race, so I wrote, you know, about the New York Times 1619 Project, you know. Tanahasi Coates' story on, on redlining in Chicago, the case for reparations is a great, is a really good informational story that's written well. Um, but yeah, it's like, I don't watch TV news, like, ever. And sometimes, sometimes during events, I guess I should, like, I usually do watch, like, riots and things just to see the visuals because I think it's important. Um, but I don't watch a lot of TV news, so most information I get is going to be from reading. Now, if I see someone tweet something, I don't take it as... I, I, of course, there's times I have taken stuff verbatim and been wrong because it sounds like someone's saying something they, they, they did the work themselves to verify, but it's not true. But usually I follow the links or I, I take a second to Google, like, okay, is there a real actual news story on this that's quoted people? 
and maybe is on the scene and isn't just like, you know, a game of telephone. Doug Bruno is the head coach of the DePaul women's basketball team. In our interview with him, he talked a lot about the need for people to educate themselves. As a coach, he said that his athletes have brought up these issues to him before, and that as a team they have been working to taking action, which was one of his main takeaways that while it's imperative for people to speak out, it's also very important for people to take action. Bruno also spoke on the divisiveness we see uh, around the United States today, and he gave his perspective on what people need to do to better understand the perspectives of African American people. Bruno started out by discussing the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The Constitution was written so that a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. The Constitution was written before cell phones. It is impossible to presume innocence in this instance. You know, the, you know George Floyd was murdered, and I, I, I am not opposed. I'm not afraid of saying so. I mean, we all watched it. So there's uh, an unbelievable uh, amount of indignation, anger, hurt that goes on from the African American perspective, and yet. As a white human being, as a white male, I didn't get to go to the store and order whether I was going to be a white male or, or an African-American male. And nor did anybody who has to, who has to grow up African-American in the injustices of our history of America go to the store and order themselves to be born an African-American male or an African-American female. We don't get to do that. So I think it's also very important that we, that I, you know, I mean, address the fact that I cannot absolutely walk in the shoes of an African-American male, but I can point to the fact that what we witnessed is murder, and, and I'm not afraid to speak out to say that. Bruno continued, saying that while it is important for coaches to speak out in times like these, it is also imperative that they need to follow up with consistent action that takes place over a period of time. You asked about coaches and coaches speaking up. I definitely think it's important to speak up, but I think it's more important to act up. And you know, actions, I've always spoken louder than words. And I really believe that addressing race in America is a subject matter that must be addressed in obvious times. Ferguson, Baltimore, New York, Laquan McDonald's here in Chicago, Minneapolis. But it is also a subject matter that must be constantly addressed, not just when we witness what we've just witnessed in the last 10 days. So I really think it's important and incumbent on coaches to encourage action, teach action, and, you know, Again, I get I, I, I get social media. I posted my own statement on social media. I, I wanted it to be short and, and to the point, not a long-winded statement, though I respect everybody's longer statements. But at the same time, it's, it's about action. And action 
requires work. You know, everybody, you, you, you all, I, I think there's a, a universal pent up feeling that I know personally, I can only speak to myself. You know, I want to fix it all right now. You know, and yet, how can we fix it all right now in one fell swoop? You can't. You know, you can't go back to the moment 400 plus years ago when somebody that was white from Europe thought it was okay to go to an African village and wake some people up because they were black and shackle them and put them on a slave ship and bring them across an ocean. So, you know, you, you can't just go back to that moment and fix that moment. You can only fix the moment we're in. And that requires action. And you want to take the big actions, but generally speaking, it's more, you know, all we have are small actions, but we must take small actions that can address and affect active change on an ongoing basis. That's what coaches need to be doing. Not just when we have points of, of what we're watching, but constantly we have to be addressing the subject of race in America. The DePaul women's team has taken action specifically to address not just the current wave of protests, but the overall movement as well. The team released a video statement via Instagram of the players themselves, which included a call to action and highlighted the need for everyone to come together. Bruno spoke of action plans the team has and the need for the players to always remember that the best leaders seek knowledge and education. We're, we're in a constant state of discussion about what are the actions that can be taken. And I think it's very important as coaches to get your players to come up with, I mean, we can lead and we as a staff discuss action plans. And we've come up and formulated multiple potential action plans. But it's still important for the, for the athletes themselves to, I mean, to, to, to come up with the action plans. And, and again, last, and Gina, I was, I mean, we started talking, this is at the Paul Williams basketball team, last Tuesday, last Wednesday, the day, not, not Sunday, after African-American people, whether you believe justifiably or so, I personally happen to believe justifiably, you know, you, you took actions that they felt necessary to take. It, it's, you know, we began working on trying to come up with actions as, as recently or as soon after the watching of, of George Floyd took place. So you asked specifically, what are some of those actions? First, yes, you have to get your players talking. And I think the first step is everybody has to understand where everybody comes from. There are African member, American members of our team. There are white members of our team. There are biracial members of our team. And everybody has to understand where everyone else is coming from. And, and then once you start discussing where each and everyone comes from and the shared indignities that an African-American human being has to endure on a daily basis that we as white people don't have to endure on a day or live through on a daily basis, need to be discussed, need to be talked about. Okay, that's the starting point. But then, okay, one of our players said, you know, we have to vote. And then how many of you have voted? And 
was interesting. The majority of my basketball team has not yet voted. I mean, some have, but not the majority. So, you know, again, back to action takes work. You have to not just vote. It takes work to educate yourself about who you are voting for. It takes work to go and get other 18 to 22 year olds to register to vote. So again, this is just a simple action plan. And the action plan of, of you know, self-education. I, I mean, to educate oneself. If you're gonna grow into a leader in tomorrow's society or even today's society, I say tomorrow's because as an 18 to 22 year old, you can be a leader and I hope we are teaching leadership within our women's basketball team, but grow into an active leader of society, you must be educated. And yes, you're receiving your education as DePaul students by a great faculty, a great curriculum. All right, but what are you doing to self-educate? Those leaders that are in the best position to take action, to have impact on action, are educated human beings and they take the time. It's, it's work to self-educate. Reading books is work. It's not to know your history from the from the beginning for, to, 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 to date or from to date back to the beginning. It's work. It's so I mean to bring in, I mean, a speaker, you know, and, and an African American male speaker, because we are a gender of a discriminated group. Women are discriminated against grossly and badly in this country. There is gender discrimination in this country that my players live with every single solitary day. But it's not the same exact inequity that an African-American male, we have African-American females, we don't have any African-American males. So, you know, to, be, to bring in a speaker that is an African-American male to share, and we haven't done all of these things yet, but you asked what are some potential action plans that can take place. So when we return to campus, keep the dialogue going, not just in February when it's Black History Month, all right? But to keep the dialogue going, to keep the action plans effort-filled, you know, to keep the discussion constant. I mean, these are some action plans, but I see in my team, I see in some of my recruits, great leaders, great leaders, great female African-American leaders and great white leaders. But you can't be a leader without being educated. I mean, Mary Bennett Swanson is a, a white woman that graduated from DePaul University a couple of years ago, who's in law school right now, that wants to be uh, a, a senator of the United States. So, okay. I, you know, one of her, her best friends is Jessica January, who is still playing basketball right now, you know, and, and still, but she's a very talented, and I just single out to, you know, there's many of my former players that are in positions to take leadership roles out in their community. So th these are, this is, but you have to be educated first. And, and you, you, you look at the greatest leaders in the history of our country, and the time that they spent, the work that they spent, whether it's Dr. King, whether it's Malcolm X, whether you talk about white Abraham Lincoln, you talk about white leaders through the history of our country, and they all 
work. Michelle Obama right now, Barack Obama, they all work to self-educate as well as to be educated, mainstream educate, but they worked overtime to be more self-educated than the person next to them. And this is work. This is action. In terms of education and people trying to become more educated, Bruno said reading is necessary. Well, I, I, th I think you have to encourage. I mean, it's pretty hard to educate yourself without reading. And reading takes effort and work. I mean, you, you, you have to read. You have to synthesize the, the information. You have to, you, know, you, you, you so you have to encourage people, I, I think, to read, to read and, and to communicate. We still have verbal communication. We still have interaction with one another also is a form of, of education today. I mean, I, I just had this discussion with my staff, some of whom are, are elder ages and some of our younger ages. And, and you know, somebody said, and I understand me, and the last thing our players are going to do after finals, want to do after finals is to read a book. And they're right. You're tour students. I mean, the last thing that a student's going to want to do is read another book. I mean, you want to decompress a little bit. You want to have a little bit of a break. But I, I wish that we could become educated without reading. But if there's a way to, I mean, what is a book? It's a shared conversation. Yeah, and, and it's, a, a, it's, it's an active experience. So, I mean, and again, I don't want to oversimplify here. The only way we can fix this is to read and, and readers are leaders and go to the library. I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify here. When asked about the divide we see in America today, Bruno took a historical perspective. He said that America is built on different ideas and different values. Once again, Bruno stressed to people the need to learn, especially with the context of race. I've been really conflicted about the political climate in America for a number of years. Again, I don't mean to sound old. What I'm conflicted about is not the differings of political views. What I'm really conflicted about is the inability to have open, constructive, respectful dialogue between the two parties, basically. I mean, for there's been conservatives and liberals in this country for the history of our country. I mean, go back to the founding of the country, the Federalists, you know, the Federalists. I mean, you, you had Hamilton and the Federalists against Jefferson and the, and the landowners. I mean, so there's been conflict among parties from the inception and the beginning of this country. And yet, you know, the, the respectful ability to debate and disagree has, has been missing for, you know, it's, it's starting to become six, seven. It's been starting to happen. I mean, it's not the way it used to be. So I really, really, you know, I, it just, it's just really, really difficult to watch the inability to respectfully disagree. And, and it drives me absolutely crazy. I know where I stand. I know what I stand for. I know how I want to present it and talk about it. And it gets to the point where you can't even talk about it sometimes, even with your own family, even within your own family. It, it, it gets to a point where you, know, you can't even have these discussions and I don't that that's not what civil that's not what the country was founded on. It was founded on differing ideas. So you know to, to you know to the, to the specifics about race in America, there is no question that there's going to be 
a, you know, there's an obvious decision, the division. I mean, there are human beings that are born African-American and there's human beings that are born white. And, and you know, there has to be a coming together. Uh, again, I have to do my best to learn from my African-American brothers and sisters, my male brothers, learn, 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 which I, I really think I've been working to do since, since my high school years. I was blessed to go to a, an integrated high school where I had very many African-American friends in that high school. So, I mean, I began to learn at an early age the difference and, and, and work to accommodate and, and empathize with that difference. And then at the same time, you know, try to have the African-American experience, which is going to be exclusive to our white experience. Now, understand that there are things we want to do and we want to act upon and that we can never be, we can never be an African-American male. And, you know, and again, listening to what my African-American brothers go through every day, you know, why, why would I want to be an African-American male who has to get stopped you know, when they shouldn't be stopped or treated certain, I mean, but, but you asked about the divide of us and, and you know, the, the, the divide is, and again, again, the divide is not just, it is right now presently African-American race in America, but this divide is also, gen, there's a gender divide in this America that we cannot forget about. You know, there's a, there's a religious divide going on in this America that we cannot forget about. So these divides are, are definitely race. And at the same time, I, you know, they're, they're, they're race, they're gender, they're religion. There are, there are there's sexuality divides going on in this country. So there's divides here that can only be you know, addressed by understanding and communication and working to empathize and see and, and respectful disagreement respectful disagreement, not, not divisive disagreement, not, not always contentious disagreement. We would like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us and engaging in conversations about this important time in our country's history. We would also like to thank you, our listeners, for choosing to listen to this particular episode. And we hope it encourages you to have conversations with your family and friends about how to facilitate more change across the nation. Make sure to visit the links we have attached in the description, donate if you can, and please take a few seconds to sign the petitions. We will have more podcasts to follow in the coming weeks, but we felt it was imperative to make this one. To end this episode, here's a quote from Michelle Obama that we feel is important to hear. Quote, it's up to all of us, black, white, everyone, no matter how well-meaning we think we might be, to do the honest, uncomfortable work of rooting it out. End quote. The it being the systemic and institutionalized racism that has plagued this country since its founding.